Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the globes to the champions internationally. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, your open space specialists, GLG. Celebrating 25 years of industry expertise and exceptional service. Find out more at glgcorp.com. Welcome to the first serve. It is your home of tennis. Brett Phillips back for another week. We are one week down at the 2020 US Open. That is predominantly going to be our focus on this week's show. Let's get straight into it. I reckon on a day where the Open was top of the headlines right around the world with the default of the world number one Novak Djokovic for hitting a linesperson in the throat accidentally. A lot has been spoken about it. Yes, in my mind, it was absolutely the correct decision. Australian tennis commentator Lou Fleming is over in New York at the US. Open, part of the World Feed team. She joined me earlier today on Life Inside the Bubble after a week leading into the Novak incident and plenty more. It is so different. Of course, the USTA have just done an incredible job with all their protocol and pulling everything together. In my mind, all the players have been um, very grateful and they have pretty much stuck to the rules. And yeah, it has been, it's kind of surreal just walking around There literally is no one around. Uh, Each player has been allowed to have three people come, but pretty much most players have brought one person, just their coach. There's no family and friends. Um, And it's amazing for us, for for commentators and for people. We We can fly around the courts. There's no one there. And you get the best seat. You can be sitting down one seat away from, you know, Arthur Ashe Stadium. So, yeah, it's been amazing. Very unique, though. I imagine for the players, Lou, I mean, they're, they're getting to go to areas of the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre that they normally can't get to because they'd be swamped by fans. And they're normally in their little player lounge bubble, play the match, do their recovery, warm up, go back to the hotel through transport here. They can actually be a competitor, obviously. That's what they're there for, but almost feel like a fan in a sense. So this is such a rare opportunity for the players to have no limits as to where they can sort of go and just experience the tennis. Yeah, absolutely. And when you do see them in the plaza in the middle of the whole centre there, where normally there's a whole, you know, hoo-ha going on, a lot of people before matches at night, there's music going on and it's a real place of congregation. Well, they've just got all these games and, and things for all the players to sit. There's great lounges, there's little tents. And they're just sitting in front of all the screens, just kind of chatting. And it is a really relaxed and nice environment. Obviously, all the all the seeds, um, all the past champions also get a place in the corporate box where they can sit back, relax, and and watch matches. Literally, they are watching more tennis than they ever would have at any Grand Slam. And you're right because normally you play your match, you do your um, post-match interviews, 
you you then go back to the city, you get to do things. But when they're in the bubble, there's not much to go back to. So they're actually really enjoying hanging out and, um, yeah, just really watching a lot more tennis, I would say. Lou, the big story uh, today that's uh, lit up a radio station like ours, lit up social media has been the default of the world number one and, and seeming like he was probably heading for another Grand Slam victory, victory number 18, but an unbelievable winning streak. Novak Djokovic has a moment that he'd love back. We haven't heard from him because he didn't stick around and do his usual press conference, so maybe another fine coming his way, but we've seen different angles on social media. It's pretty black and white, isn't it? And players know the rules once they're inside the, the perimeter there of the court, and it didn't look good. And I suppose some people were sort of speculating, you know, they were surprised maybe that Novak got the whack because sometimes there are different rules for the best mm-hmm. players in the game. But probably it's relief to everyone to know that this is a black and white rule, whether you're the world number one or whether you're the world number 101. What, what did you make of what's unfolded today? Yeah, absolutely. It was actually uh, quite amazing, Brett. I literally just walked out of the commentary booth up the top of the stadium there were probably six or seven of us just walked down and sat right in Arthur Ashe Stadium. And we just watched this whole probably 10, 15 minutes unfold. Um, you know, I mean, Novak was not going to lose this tournament. You would have to think he was going to win this event. Um, it, it was getting tight in there, though. Carino, Booster... It, well, Novak had a chance. He was love 40. He was, he was ready to break and take the set. And then he didn't break, got upset. In the middle of his own service game, he fell down on his shoulder, looked like he kind of, he, he behaved as if, as if he had dislocated it, but he didn't. Got some treatment, came back, lost that game, and that's when everything unraveled. He just turned around, whacked the ball behind him, and unfortunately... Of course, he wasn't aiming at anyone, uh, but he hit the lineswoman in the throat and she went down and it didn't look great. And, of course, he, he did not mean to do that. And, you know, that's the rule. Unfortunate if it was uh, meant to be or not, he, he, had to, he had to be defaulted. And I think uh, Soren, the referee, did the right thing. Actually, I was just listening to one of the broadcasters saying a couple of games before he did the same thing and one of the commentators said he needs to be a little careful of that because he didn't look behind and if you come close and we know the rules so yeah totally totally unfortunate like I I almost can't believe it but yes that was the right outcome yeah no doubt I think there's been an overwhelming chorus supporting that the interesting part about all of this Lou is we've had live Hawkeye on all the courts apart from Ash and Armstrong so if there had been live Hawkeye it would have been a cleaner court with no lines people it probably wouldn't have happened but can I ask you about live Hawkeye, do you think it's a good thing? Is it something that can be implemented across all the slams and maybe across the tour? I don't know 100% what the cost of it is, but I imagine it's probably not a cheap exercise to do. Do you like that or do you still love perhaps the drama of the lines people and players disputing calls, which gets the crowd involved, whereas this is, no, this is technology. It's either in, out, we show the replay, get on with it, you can't argue. What do you like? Yeah, look, it has sped up the game. It's taken the emotion out of it a little bit as well. Um, in terms of the dollars spent, yeah, I don't know. To set up the cameras on every court and to use it as Hawkeye, I mean, 
you know, it, it is a, a, the budgets get tighter around the world. I wonder if it is something that they do entertain because you're not paying for lines, people, umpires and different people flying around the world, hotels, whatnot. But it does take something away from the feeling of the match, I feel. I'd like to see uh, the lines people coming back and, and I'd like to see the tradition kind of brought back. It does bring a little bit more excitement as well, just watching Hawkeye and the whole vision yeah, I think we're missing something a little bit here. But but obviously it was something that was needed to do here. And, uh, you know, it, it's worked yeah, really strangely well. It's kind of weird though, isn't it? Because some players have said, well, well, I still want to see the vision. It's yeah. like, well, you know, it doesn't matter because it's not going to change anything. Tennis has an opportunity to look at so many things across the board through this COVID year as to what the product looks like. Women's side of the draw, Serena certainly deserves the respect. Big win against Sloan. She's got a player, though, that, gee, she's taken some real leaps. Uh, Maria Sakari, coached by a really young guy, Tom Hill, who's making his mark in coaching. We talk about Sitsi Pass on the men's side, but she is flying the flag beautifully for Greek tennis Azarenka still dangerous in the draw. Sophia Kennan, the Australian Open winner, still in the draw. And, you know, I spoke to Stephen Huss on this show a couple of weeks ago who had a little bit to do with Jennifer Brady uh, through her development. One Lexington coming in. And the quote that was associated with her today is that she's she's ready for excellence. She's ready to achieve excellence. And you can see that yep. in her game, just the application that she's putting into her tennis. And Shelby Rogers with a a really big win over Kvitova today. With what's left on the women's side of the draw, how does the run home look like in the second week? Oh, it's incredible, actually. I think, well, the women's uh, US Open this year has been the standout. It's really been phenomenal tennis, and it's just allowed all these youngsters to really step up. And, you know, I think coming into the US Open, it was an absolute equaliser. I think it doesn't matter if you're a past champion, if you, you know, you've got all these accolades and if you're somebody, it, it absolutely meant nothing. I think it just tore everyone back to the absolute beginners. And before the before the tournament, when I saw uh, Jen Brady win in Lexington, I just kind of thought, she's my one that I was going to watch. Uh, the way she started the Australian Open this year, well, not the, the Australian run, I should say, uh, beating Sharapova and then having another great win, then, of course, beating Ash Barty. So she knows the feeling of beating the very top, the very top players. Um, obviously, then having to play Halep in the first round of the Australian Open. So she bowed out early. But she has continued to do incredibly well, did great in Doha. Now she's, like, just kicking goals. I think she's one of those outliers. She's got a massive serve, and she just uses that forehand like the guys. Um, she's a dangerous player. I did the match today with Angelique Kerber. It was it was incredible. Twenty five winners to sixteen winners. She just was all over. There was no chance for Angelique. Look, I mean, there's some there's great players. Of course, Serena. You know, she's playing great. Maria Sakari. I mean, I, I did the match also with Enesimova. She is just in great form. I love watching her athleticism. Yeah. She'll step up against Serena. Also, Azarenka. I've been going out and watching her practice. Phenomenal. You know, you see the players here. This is what excites me. If you're here at the US Open this year, you want to be here. Mm. You are absolutely grateful and you are going for it. And, and that's the thing that I've really seen. Look at the attitude of everyone on court. 
there's no messing up. There's no looking and playing up and behaving and this and that. It's just, it's been amazing, particularly on the women's side. Attitude has been through the roof. I mean, I think the match tomorrow is Azarenka Mukova. Mukova was insane against Kusaya. Oh, she was, it was amazing. She was 5-3 down, fought back. Kusaya was up 6-3 in the tiebreaker. I mean, that's the match tomorrow that'll be amazing. But you're right. It, there's a kaleidoscope of interesting things happening for the women. No, you can feel that intensity, can't you? You might have the intensity from the stands, but at court level, there's no lack of intensity there. It's a grand slam. It's big stakes. And Azarenka, when her and Ash lost the doubles final last year, I went in to do the press conference and we were sitting a few metres away. And, and Victoria Azarenka has just got... I mean, even in press, is unbelievable competitiveness. I mean, she hates losing. If you didn't quite phrase the question the right way, she was all over you. And, and she's <laughs> lost none of that on court, despite becoming a mum and life-changing for her and all the setbacks she's had to deal with in the last two or three years. It hasn't allowed that continuity in her tennis. She's a Grand Slam champion. She's born to be a winner and she's a hard worker. Yeah, no, I, I love her. It was funny. The other day I was coming in and this is this is where, again, we're just having such great opportunities. I was walking into the stadium with her. She just arrived and I just said, oh, Vicar, gosh, I, I just have so many fond memories of you playing here at the US Open. I said two matches. Well, actually, I said one in particular comes to mind and I said the match against uh, Kerber in 2015 I said it was one of the best matches I've ever seen and I said did did you love playing that match and have you got that feeling back of that kind of play and she said I've got one other great match that I even felt better and she said and it was yeah 2012 against Samantha Stozer she said that match to me was one of the most memorable matches here at the US Open so she's got a a lot of good feelings and I, I just feel like, yeah, this this amazing kind of attitude that she's got an intensity and who knows how far Victoria can go. I, I wonder just the forehand if it's going to hold up as well as Mukova. Mukova just does everything perhaps a little bit better, but so great to see Vicar back. More of Lou Fleming coming up after the break. All thanks to Tennis Direct, Australia's favourite online tennis store. Fast delivery, great prices, free delivery on orders over $150. Visit their website, tennisdirect.com right now and first serve listeners can get a 10% discount store wide just use the promo code first serve 1010 we're here thanks to top agents real estate servicing all of melbourne if you're looking to buy rent sell or have your property investment managed make contact with david and his team 95584599 or top-agents.com.au you're listening to the first serve the first serve your home of tennis thanks to glg greenlife group Celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com Welcome back to the First Serve. Let's continue my chat following day seven at the US Open today with Australian tennis commentator Lou Fleming, who I caught up with at Flushing Meadows. Let's touch on the men. So we've seen Jordan Thompson go out to Borna Chorich. I want to ask you, I'm a fan of Tomo. I think he's IQ. He did commentary with us earlier in the year. I love his tennis brain, the way he thinks through things. He's tried to add so much variety to his game. He knows he hasn't got the biggest serve. He hasn't got the biggest ground strokes, but very smart getting around the court. He's got to a high of 43 at one stage. Then he plays against Borna, who's been on the eve of the top 10. He slipped back a little bit, still part of the top 30. Very, very solid. Obviously had a lot of success early as a young guy, taking some good scalps at you know, 18, 19, 20 years of age. 
there was just the difference today. It can be subtle at times that you really have to watch the match closely to notice because you use the phrase sort of workmanlike to describe both players heading in. Yeah. But Bourne is workmanlike, obviously, at a better level than Jordan's. But can you can you try and explain to people what that difference is? Because you, you watch a lot of tennis, you watch a lot of players who can stay around 40, 50, 60 in the world but can't get to 30, 20 inside the top 10. Yeah, I think, look, in the game, in the men's game today, uh, you, you know, you really need to have those little extra weapons. And, look, I think um, Tomo does everything really well. Sometimes the forehand can get a little... He loses some confidence on that. But yeah. he has really hit his groundies here at the US Open extremely well. I felt today when I was watching Borna Choric... He just had a little bit more when he needed to. He could just lift on his serve, go for a little bit more. For me, the big thing, he was looking to come in more um, than Geordie today. And, and I felt he could impose himself in that aspect more often. And his touch is incredible. He had really good touch. He could finish the point up at the net. And, and I think Tomo... He's just got to continue to keep working on the variation. He was extremely good when he'd throw that backhand slice in. He used variation from the back better than Chorich, but he just couldn't produce the opportunity to really step in and crack a winner. I love how he used his backhand down the line to open up the court. Forehand to forehand, Chorich was just a little bit better. The serve was a little bit better. The one thing, I guess, you know, that I really love about Tomo is his competitiveness. And I think if there's a moment in matches, and, and we, you know, we've seen that, throughout, particularly against Jerismov, when he played against him, he was just able to hang out with these guys and just kind of like really, it almost, you know, he, he kind of just waits them out and waits for his moment and then he can kind of pounce. Yeah. But he's not the guy that's going to come out and just be able to hit guys off, you know, the court. And whether he has to do that or whether he's happy just to sit in that mould and be a little bit more you know, of the baseline, steady guy who's going to do their head in. And, you know, that's that attitude part that he's got. And he's an incredible athlete. You know, he's got a lot of positives. For players who've got such good foundations like Jordan, that decision you've got to make to be maybe a little bit more assertive, because sometimes the word passive is used to describe Jordan. Yeah. Acknowledge that he's got a good skill set. He's highly competitive. He'll chase down balls. He'll make you play an extra ball. You've got to work pretty hard to beat him. But how does his mindset shift to becoming a little bit more of a risk taker, but not giving up your core position, your ground? It's a, it's a fine line, isn't it? At times we would love him to be just that fraction more assertive when he's in a position that he, he can sort of dictate the point a little bit. Yeah, he kind of locks it in. He's got to learn a little bit more, you know, to lock out and just go, right, I have to take some chances. And I, I feel if he can use his forehand a little bit deeper he sometimes it, he can't get it out of that central zone gets a little kind of stuck in the middle there that allows them to be the first one to kind of dictate and be more aggressive but if, if he can continue to kind of set his plays up where he's opening up the court and he can come in backhand down the line or, or have some shots where he knows once he gets that position of a short ball, he comes in. He's, he's got great hands at the net, but I think that transitional game is is really got to be looked at. It's got to exploit that, you know, to take that next step. You've you just got to have the one point of difference. So his fellow countryman, who we're going to see tomorrow, Alex Demonor, has gone to a place where Jordan hasn't got to just yet. We know that the talents of Demonor, it's yeah. there to, 
for everyone to see and where it ends up long term, who knows, as the men's game will continue to shift with the older players moving through and you know, this young brigade, who's going to really peak? His core coverage, his appetite for the contest, he comes from two sets to one down against Hutchinov. Sets up a match with Vashek Pospisil. We wouldn't have seen that as a matchup at the start of the yes, tournament. Vashek knocking over Raonic, I opened the door up. Take me through that match tomorrow, which I know for us in Melbourne, we're going to have to get up extremely early because it's 1am, so sit the alarm. Just paint the picture of that one for us tomorrow. Oh, look, I went out and watched the match. It was it was an absolute cracker. It was brilliant. Alex was was playing so incredibly well. Got a huge game. And and he could just bring another ball in, manoeuvre him around. You could just see, Karen, he was just getting really frustrated with the amount of balls that Alex was bringing in. And when he would come to the net, Alex was just doing an incredible job of getting that two-shot pass. He would get that ball to dip and then he could rip. He was doing incredibly well at that. And then the other thing that I think that Alex has really worked on, winning the the doubles uh, just a week ago has absolutely helped him. When he came into the net, and and again, this is what Tomo could take really out of uh, Alex's book, he was coming in more than I've ever seen him come in and then hitting these incredibly good soft touches really great volleys where he was able to put it on a dime. And I really feel that was just the back of playing some great doubles. He served really well. You know, he hit 42 winners against Karen. Um, it, he was amazing. I, I really loved his fighting kind of spirit. And against Pospisil, just negate the big forehand, the big serve, and make the guy kind of just hang in on these longer rallies. I mean, really, Pospisil, has he got any kind of luck left in the draw you'd have to think not I mean beating Ronich you know then Batista a good who is going to see that is he running out of steam five sets in the last one I just wonder himself if he's think you know he's he's almost done but Alex has never been to a quarterfinal it'd be his first time there's a lot riding on it he's just got to bring that pinpoint accuracy and and make the guy run and and be super solid with his mentality it's a great matchup it's hard not to like Alex he from an Australian sports person point of view even if you're not a fanatical tennis follower if you just love your sport and you love a good contest you'd always be turning on the TV or if you had a ticket to the Australian Open you'd be wanting to sit courtside because you know you're going to get everything it's it's incredible I, I caught up with his mum Esther at Wimbledon last year we sat down for half an hour and you could just get the feeling of this young guy you, you know you, you were being painted the picture of what he was like as a five six seven year old eight year old yeah and it, it just shines through he's got an unbelievable competitive nature great skill set to go with it he's no doubt filling out physically he's never going to be the biggest guy but my goodness, you just wonder how far that game can take him. But one step at a time, quarterfinal would be a nice breakthrough after making the fourth round last year where he lost to Grigor. I think took a set off Grigor in that match out on grandstand. But just one final one for you. Our girls were really competitive. I mean, Sharma loses a really, really tight one to your Yastrzemska. Cabrera, Inglis out in three. Unfortunately, Priscilla Hon couldn't quite make the trip. So, Lou, they've all done a, a great job to get themselves between 100 and 130. Astra's been inside the top 100 for a little period. What's going to be the key for these girls to get to the next level? Because a lot of players can get to that region and sort of get stuck in that region. 
We know it's small margins that can decide winning or losing. It's tough. There's so many hungry competitors on the on the women's side of the game. But what's going to be the keys? They've done a mighty job to get to that point. Absolutely. Look, in a nutshell, it is that self-belief. I really feel... For all of them, they all played incredibly well. Astra, she's got so many bigger, you know, she's got the assets that she needs, that massive serve, and now it's backing it up with the ground strokes to match that serve as well. Working on the serve, plus one, really dictating with the first shot. She can get a little passive, but against Yastremska, she was oh, amazing. The second set, it was so good to watch, yeah. so much energy, so much self-belief. And that she's got to be able to play for the whole three sets. She is certainly going the right way. She's worked physically. She's now working with Dave Taylor. He works well with forehand players. So he'll be able to construct her game in a really positive way. I think she's got everything to go to that next step. It's against the big hitters that she struggles a little bit. She's tall. She's got long limbs. Very much uh, kind of, you know, she struggles a little bit on the forehand with that fastball. So she's just got to really learn how to kind of negate that a little but she's certainly going the right way. And, and then also just coming forward, she's got great hands. Maddie Inglis was outstanding in her match. And I think there's nothing she needs to change. She, again, just needs to keep playing the same way she does, using her forehand, staying very low. I'd like to see her be able to come in and hit that dry volley a little bit more. She competed against a player that's top 30 in the world, was totally... She was great. Again, getting out and playing more WTA events for all of the girls, Lizette, Maddie, Astra. You have to get that feeling of competing against these girls week in, week out. And that's what is really missing. And I I sat down with all of them and had that chat. And they all agree because otherwise the heart rate and everything is just, you're just not used to it and you don't handle yourself as well as what you would. I mean, Maddie just was a little slow starting. That first set, a little overwhelmed, but then certainly, you know, played a great sets two and three against Lynette. So a lot of really good positive stuff. It's just, again, just being able to be out and compete week in, week out on the WTA Tour and having that self-belief. Great to catch up with Australian tennis commentator Lou Fleming. Thanks to Tennis Direct, Australia's favourite online tennis store. Fast delivery, great prices, free delivery on orders over 150 $50. Visit their website, tennisdirect.com.au. And first serve listeners can get a 10% discount store wide. So just use the promo code first serve 10. Plenty to come. The first serve, your home of tennis. The first serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural, and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG. Your open space specialists, glgcorp.com. The first serve, Brett Phillips with you during this US Open. My next guest was the hitting partner of Serena Williams for eight years. He's been part of Team Azarenka, Team Wozniacki, with Sloan Stevens for a stint. He coached Naomi Osaka from 70 in the world to number one, winning two majors, and was named the WTA Coach of the Year. Has worked with Kiki Mladenovic in 2019, and this year is guiding the fortunes of young Ukrainian star Diana Yastremska inside the top 30 at just 20 years of age. His name is Sasha Bain. Let's have a little chat about your coaching journey. I had David Taylor on our show last week, who obviously, like you, has spent a lot of time on the WTA Tour. He's coached a a lot of plays. He's going to be coming back to Australia to be part of our National Academy set-up. And he spoke last year about just how sort of fickle the coaching business has become. I mean, he had some long-term relationships and then he's had 
some shorter stints with players, particularly on the women's side of the game where there seems to be a lot of coach-player relationships that obviously have a certain tenure and then players often will decide, well, I'm going to go in a different direction. I mean, you've experienced that personally. I mean, how would you describe the WTA Tour and just the amount of short-term coaching relationships that seem to exist? Yeah, I don't know if that has something to do with the WTA Tour in particular, but with me, it was just, I mean, I'm... And one of those examples, like uh, I was working with Vika for two and a half years. She got pregnant, you know, Sloan got re-injured. You know, I had a good contract and great success with Caroline, but she didn't want to continue. She wanted to do with her, with her father her own thing, so, which is okay. But, you know, certain things happen. Sometimes it's injuries. Sometimes they feel like they want, I don't know, like a, a fresh energy or they feel like, you know, there's nothing more they, I can teach them, or you know, so... It depends. It always depends. But I don't think that's necessary just on the women's women's tour. But um, yeah, it happened to me too. Take us through your evolution as a coach, because even though that's been the case, I mean, as your resume has developed, you've become highly sought after and you've coached some of the best women in the game. Just tell us about your own evolution as a coach. I started early. I met Serena in 2007 and then she needed a hitting partner, you know, to travel with her, a guy who has no private life and who had nothing else to do but um, just to help her. And obviously, like, uh, yeah, that was a a great pleasure for me to start with her. So, um, yeah, in 2007, started traveling as a hitting partner full-time with Serena. Um, And then, you know, like, obviously like if we we worked together for eight years um after that i um i i mean i learned a lot from her from mr williams you know like just being around one of the world's greatest athletes of all time um teaches you a certain type of like professionalism that um that's very hard to catch somewhere else and i think that i really did learn a lot about coaching like from just being around that whole environment and then um and then after that, I, uh, I, I traveled two and a half years with uh, Victoria Zarenka, um, then with uh, Sloan Stevens for six months. We didn't even have a tournament. We were just doing a lot of rehab and, and light hittings. And then we actually tried our first tournament in Sydney, but she had to pull out before it started. Um, then I traveled with Naomi Osaka for a year and four months. And, uh, right, and then with uh, Christina Mladenovic from last year, March till, till till the end of the year, and now Medina, now Medina Yastremska. So yeah, and then all all of those relationships. Also, that just name was all, also just two times quit by myself. So, but it happens, yeah. But I'm happy. I'm happy where I'm at now. Where do you think you've grown most? I mean, you you sort of it's interesting because you know that journey that you've described. Yeah. People in tennis, I think, have certainly got to know you. You've been very accessible to the media. You've given us some. Yeah. Uh, real insights from a coach's point of view because often we'd see the coach in the stand but we never really hear from the coach so I think it's great that coaches are doing a little bit more media these days but just tell us how you've grown from being that hitting partner with Serena into being really recognized on the tour as a legitimate coach. I mean, it's hard work, you know, like eventually I always, I, I told them like they, because, you know, they wanted to label me for a long time just as a hitting partner. I always thought I did more than that, but I never, I never pay attention to what people want to put a name on something, you know, they want to name something so bad, but I just always wanted to do my work. And eventually, you know, if I, if I do a really good job, I know people will recognize 
um, or recognize something and you know it will give me my my own student and it will give me my own responsibility that I've always craved and that's why you know the decisions I've always made was always for craving more responsibility and putting me even myself sometimes maybe in like uncomfortable positions but um, I'm happy that they see it of course um, I'm glad that they that they see me coaching me now. What's been your most rewarding coaching experience would you say to this stage? The most rewarding coaching experience I can't pinpoint one point. I don't know. I can't pinpoint one real like moment because it's not really like, you know, obviously, you know, the whole US Open experience with Naomi was something I'll, I'll never forget. Like, and that was crazy. Um, but, um, you know, it's even just, even just if I honestly, like, I, you know, like I teach here sometimes, I teach here like two, three kids in Palm Beach, um, they're 12 and 13 years old. And then if I just tell them, like, you know, I share them, I share a cool story with them about the US Open or I, I fix their forehand or backhand. I know it sounds cheesy, but it really is like that, that if they then come to me the next week and they say, wow, I played the tournament and it was so awesome. And they were really excited about it and they won or something like that. That just makes me, that makes me also really happy because I see how, yeah. how much it means to them. And so. I can't pinpoint. There are so many moments I really like. You can save that for a book uh, one day. It's going to be a really good read <laughs> behind the scenes <laughs> with yeah. you coaching. What about just the, the game itself on the on the WTA side? I mean, the game of tennis continues to evolve, yeah. and game styles, different types of players. So, I mean, if you look at just the modern game right now, I mean, there are so many different ways to win a tennis match and so many attributes that players can bring. But what's the key to, to performance? for you as a coach? The women's game has really evolved and um, I think you have to be physically at your fittest like at all times. So that's number one. And then um, you do have to have like one or two more weapons, you know. I feel like, uh, you know, also if you look at what the girls now, how they serve, you know, you see um, Naomi serving in the high 180, 180, 123 and always, of course, ripping it out there. But then you have someone like your own Ashley Barty, you know, who's like mixes the game up so well and presents a whole different type of pressure, you know. So I think that that's something, something very interesting for the viewer and for me as a coach also to see that actually there is not one particular style that I would say like, you know, uh, you know, like how it used to be, you have to play serve and volley and, you know, you're going to be good or something. I feel like there's so much diversity right now. There's, there's girls who have big forehands and big serves there's girls who, you know, are physically so strong and put so much pressure on you by just getting a lot of balls back. There's girls who have such a beautiful variation, like, you know, Jabeur, um, Barty, you know, like all these girls having success now. So kind of nice to see that. I feel like it comes down a lot to um, physical, physical fitness and mental, like, you know, happiness somehow, like 100% believing in myself. You know, believing I can win a Grand Slam, and, and that combined with a with a mental body, I think, body and mentality. Yeah, I think that that's like kind of the most important thing right now. Diana, obviously, the who you're coaching at the moment. I mean, Ukraine are producing a lot of very good young players who are following in the footsteps of Elena Svitolina, who led the way for her country the mm. last a few years. We've seen Diana jump up the rankings in fairly quick time uh, for her age, and she's inside that top 30 at the moment. Tell us about the work you've been doing with her. You got together late last year. Obviously, COVID has really interrupted you having a full year together, but there were some good signs at the start of the year. And uh, Tell us a bit about her temperament, her style, uh, what she looks for in you as a coach, and a little bit about Ukraine, who have become sort of snuck up on us, really, as a 
as a little mini power nation with the amount of young players that they're producing who could really make their mark on the game. <laughs> yeah, the Easterners. Yeah, they have a lot of good players coming out the East. You know, Belarus, Ukraine, um, Russia, as always. But um, yeah, no, I started with I started with them in the off season in November, like late November, and then we worked through to just before Indian Wales, and um, we had a we had a pretty solid start. Yeah, we, we she played finals in Adelaide, um, beat some good players, and then lost to Ash uh, Ashley in the finals. Um, which is not a shame to lose to, you know, the reigning number one. Yep. And um, and then, yeah, I haven't seen her in six months. You know, COVID was tough. She was in the Ukraine. Um, she was over there. I was here. So she kind of like had to do her own thing with um, with her coaches over there and um, and um, and her dad, you know, who, who taught her so much anyways. And, um, and then we met up at the U.S. Open or just before Cincinnati, actually. So... It was uh, actually more of a time gap for us than we worked together. But she's, man, she's talented. You know, she's super powerful. She's, uh, you know, has a super gifted body. It's very quick around the court um, and has a lot of power for being actually, you know, not that big and strong, you would think. But she, she, packs, she, she packs a good punch in her shots. And, um, yeah, if I can sort of, like, my biggest goal is just to sort her game out a little bit, you know, tell her, why not more is always better and you know how you can start a match by trying to like find your rhythm a little quicker because we're trying to you know avoid unforced errors and how do we do that how do we you know how do we approach each other so kind of giving her that a little bit of help and um yeah but the ukraine i was over there only for like four days so i didn't i didn't really see too much but they do have a lot of good players coming out they're just really hungry and the east i feel like they always have this like old school type of school where it could be one generation where, you know, they really like have then three, four top athletes coming all of a sudden at once. Yeah, I expect good things coming out of that country and the, the surrounding countries, for sure. What are your expectations for Diana? We always talk about the women's game as being so open. I think universally people, anytime they're doing predictions for a Grand Slam or the big tournaments, you throw a blanket over it. quite a number of players who can win. And we look at the US Open now, there's some names jumping up who have been pretty solid, who are getting their opportunity to maybe shine a little bit further. But what expectations have you got for Diana? How far do you think she can go in the game? My expectations are always the same with every player. Like I have to believe that they, you know, that they want to be the best and that they can be the best. And so and I have to believe in myself also being able to help them become that. So um, wherever we go, wherever I go with my player, yeah, we try to, you know, take it one tournament, one match at a time. But I do believe she has incredible potential, whether I'm the man to help her or not. Only time will tell. But I believe she can, yeah, she can go really far, for sure. Just a holistic question. All this time off this year has probably given the tours quite a bit of time to think about what does tennis look like as an entertainment product, as a sport. I mean, it's so competitive at that, you know, elite sporting level for eyeballs. And do you think about the game? I mean, you're obviously in that coaching mould. You're with your player, very focused on that. But what about just the, the game in general of tennis around the world? You're travelling everywhere. You're seeing different countries. You're seeing different setups and, and how it operates. I mean, what does tennis maybe need to do to keep enhancing itself as a, as a product worldwide, do you think, Sasha? <laughs> That's a tough question. I love it. Yeah, I mean, we've seen the Ultimate Tennis Showdown. They tried to do it a little bit different. You know, that was like from the marketing and the, the scoring system was different. Um, I'm, I'm going to be biased to that because I'm a tennis fan and 
I, I would love to watch 10 sets of Rafa versus Roger if I have to, yeah. you know, but maybe, I don't know, maybe five setters are too long. I just don't know that you would have to ask like somehow the masses. I do believe though that somehow like, I don't know, I was always the type of guy who would love like, like Jersey for tennis, you know, to allow Roger to put his name or country on the back or something like it, you know, if, if they yep. would somehow allow that for little kids, maybe because I see them, Little kids wearing a soccer jersey from, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. And the moment they put it over, it's easier for them to imagine themselves being him, you know, running on the court and like shooting the ball. So I don't know if that's just something small. But as far as the game itself, that's a tough one. I, would, I wouldn't know because I, yeah, I'm so biased and I don't know what the masses, you know, what the masses kind of want. Like, I know that people struggle with that, right? Like people struggle with like watching like long five setters on TV and like maybe want a different rule for that or something. Before I let you go, I really appreciate your time. When you look at who's left in this US Open draw on the women's side, we've seen Jennifer Brady, who I think is a really good emerging story from the States, had a great win against Angie Kerber uh, today. What do you make of the, the rest of the women's draw that's left? Yeah, it looks interesting. Looks wide open, kind of like on one side. But I, I don't know. Like I, I'm guess I'm gonna be one of the one of the masses who's gonna pick either Serena or Naomi to take it. I guess. I think aren't they the aren't they the favorites right now? I think I would have to go with both of them. Can Serena get there? Yeah, I think so, for sure. And if she 100% believes in it, otherwise she wouldn't be there. The next two matches, if she can get through the next two and not have to also fight for too long out there on court, I think then she's really going to have a chance. Yeah, great to catch up with the man known as Big Sasha on tour. Starting from scratched off a premium glass repair, they specialise in the removal of window scratches, bringing it back to its former glory. I recommend you jump on their website. Starting from scratched with ED on the end, .com.au, and Macker and his team will sort you out. Tell them that I sent you from the first serve. Back to wrap up the show and a special guest to finish. The first serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com Welcome back to The First Serve. Brett Phillips with you, wrapping up the show. Let's catch up with Scott Draper, Head of Performance, Coach Development. He's back at Tennis Australia in a role as part of the performance review that's been going on all year, and I caught up with Scott in the last couple of hours. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Nice to be, nice to be on the show. Yeah, look, really excited to be back at TA, and oh, it's been six years, I think, for me. 2014 was the last time I was involved, and uh, nice to be involved with the coaches. So the remit is to, I guess, look after or support. It's certainly not a, um, it's nothing other than a service role for our high performance coach network, both internally at TA but also our private market. Yeah, really focused on things like curriculum, the coaching qualification, your sort of pathway, professional development. You know, trying to create opportunities uh, and experiences for all our coaches to, you know, not just travel domestically. I, I know that's kind of a silly thing to say at the moment, given the, the period we're going through. But at some point, traveling domestically and internationally to you know, expose all our coaches to to the level that's out there. So really excited about it, actually. And and, um, I'm five weeks or my fifth week into the role. We've spoken to many people on our show, Scott, who have been new appointments, some going into different roles, who have been part of Tennis Australia before with the whole performance review. As someone that Mm -hmm. has been involved internally before and is stepping back in, what are your observations of where everything just sits currently in this, you know, really tough global sport where... 
there's, there's a lot that needs to go right from the grassroots to the pathway leading up to giving our players the best chance to have some success and also coaches been able to develop as well. Where do we sort of sit just as a nation at the moment in, in how we're doing things and, and how we're trying to continue to be better? Great question. And I think for me, there's been a fair bit of water you know, under the bridge. I mean, six years being being away from it um, is significant. Uh, when I was involved back then, um, between sort of 2009 and 2014, you know, very, you know, very centralised, you know, there's a lot of specificity around, you know, the academies and, you know, less numbers. And obviously the strategy is 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 changed significantly, which I'm still trying to understand all the, the nuances, the extent of it. It's far more inclusive than it was back when I was involved. Um, the private market is being engaged, which is fantastic. I think certainly and with every strategy, there's always going to be two sides of the coin. But I'd say one of the things that you know perhaps wasn't great when I was involved was that in some respects the the, the private market was you know put to sleep in some cases due to I guess the lack of exposure to that the, the real pointy end. And I think that now that it's gone to a more inclusive approach and the private market being engaged, I think it can be more of a collective that tries to drive results for Australia than you know what it used to be. So that's that's for me from an observer or someone new coming back in, what has been the biggest shift and what that means. And I suppose in my role, what that does mean is that there's far more coaches that need to be serviced. And not everyone's going to want to be serviced, by the way, but, but those that want to kind of buy into what we're trying to do, which is to really support coaches, be the best they can be, which in turn will help the athletes. And that's going to be my focus. What is best practice? What does performance mean to you? Look, you know, there's some philosophical things in that question and there's probably some, you know, realities. You know, I think from a philosophical perspective, when we talk about high performance, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the word high performance because sometimes it can be misconstrued that it's about being really focused just on getting outcomes but I think there's a philosophical discussion that needs to take place there around the importance of sustainable performance so where I'm going with that is that tennis uh, many sports for that matter through to the military you know there's a there's a real struggle with transition um, in terms of post-career so I think as coaches you know we want to make sure we as coaches really love what we do we know why we get out of bed each day we know why athletes are getting out of bed each day, why they love to compete and having a holistic conversation, you know, that builds trust, builds relationships, which, you know, kind of fosters that notion of sustainable performance and start developing people for lives, not just for sport. So I think for me, best practice as a coach is, is really understanding the importance of that stuff because I've seen far too many athletes be really successful but not necessarily be happy and, and I think that there's a there's a real significant conversation that needs to needs to um, take place there and there's a whole education piece that sits around that but then I suppose from a uh, for me from a, a practicality or a reality perspective around high performance I think high performance coaches have really got to know what they believe uh, I think athletes can sense that when they don't have real clarity around what that is. So really being clear on your philosophy. And I think there's a, there's a real significant sort of role modeling piece there around walking the talk. So whatever you believe to be true or whatever you say is important from a high performance perspective, really making sure that your actions reflect that day in, day out. And that's what sort of, for me, breeds a great environment and what, where athletes can kind of thrive. And if that's not there, then I think we're not going to get it done as a nation. No, well said. And last one for you, and I think we'll need to get you back on the show to have another chat, certainly down the track. What do you think, Scott, is the pass mark for us as a nation in terms of our place in tennis? I mean, we've got such a rich heritage Time in the game has evolved so much that mm -hmm. this is probably the most competitive sport in the world. Just about every nation is playing yep. 
all the nations that used to be considered as minnow nations are now developing players who didn't really have a development system in place. How do we judge ourselves here in Australia as players, coaches, you know, those that have got aspirations to move through the game? In terms of giving a specific number, that's probably hard, but I kind of look at it, you know, maybe this way. Right now we have Ash Barty, who number one in the world, incredibly humble, has had a really, I, I classify as a, as a normal upbringing, played a lot of sports, you know, went away from the game, played another sport, and cricket, came back, got great perspective, really knows who she is and just gets it done. Ash isn't some, you know, big, massive Russian that kind of smashes the ball and, you know, is kind of really imposing. She does it with, you know, far more kind of skill and subtlety and nuances to her game. And so for me, if we as a nation can really understand, this is from a coaching perspective, really understand the kids that we're working with and develop them as individuals, then I believe we can be the most successful nation in the world in tennis. I mean, we've got the resources and the capability to deliver. And if we're not being the most successful in the world, then all we have to do is say, okay, where do we get better? Really get serious about that conversation and then do what's required to get better. I mean, it's not, you know, for me, rocket science. I think sometimes we overcomplicate, you know, a sport that yes, it's complex, but at the end of the day, you've got to have a simple view you and a simple approach to what it is that makes you effective and I think coaches and athletes need to buy into that kind of approach more and more. We'll certainly catch up with Scott Draper for a more extended chat down the track. All thanks to Tennis Direct, Australia's favourite online tennis store. Fast delivery, great prices, free delivery on orders over $150. Visit tennisdirect.com.au right now. That is it for us. Look forward to the big second week of the US Open. Let's hope the demon can go a little bit further. Keep an eye on the firstserve.com.au. Our website right throughout the week on socials as well and we'll do it all again next Monday night. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.